Well, we are going to embark on a series in uh, in First Peter. Uh, today is only going to be two verses, verses one and two. And Lord willing, next month there'll be two messages, verses three through five, in verses six through nine. Uh, there is such a wealth of things to be learned from the letter of First Peter, and so. I'm really excited about uh, entering into a series uh, on this. So, uh, may God bless us as we begin looking at the Apostle Peter's first letter. Uh, The title uh, of this message is Electing Grace. Electing Grace. So let's pray and, and ask God to help us in this. Dear Heavenly Father, gracious Lord, we offer up to you our praise In our thanksgiving, you've given us eternal life in your Son. God, we would ask you, Holy Spirit, would you now illuminate our hearts and minds with your word? We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So, not a big passage to read the first two verses of 1 Peter. So let's read that right now, 1 Peter 1, verses 1 and 2. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Well, just a few words on the, on the background of this letter. Uh, Peter was living at Rome at the time when when he wrote 1 Peter, and it was written somewhere around 62 to 65 A.D. Not long after he wrote 2 Peter, uh, he he was martyred, and that was about the same time as the the Apostle Paul. And so most likely this happened during the persecution of the church that was launched by the Roman Emperor Nero, uh, somewhere around 67 uh, A.D. Nero died in 68 A.D. So about this letter itself, it could be described as a full-orbed manual for the Christian faith. There is just so much good things to read in First Peter and so much to learn about. There's very little that Peter does not address. One commentator writes that First Peter is the most condensed New Testament resume of the Christian faith. That's that's saying quite a bit. The suffering that comes from persecution is a main theme of this book, and it is mentioned in all five chapters. So the question of how to endure persecution is going to loom large on every page of 1 Peter. Peter gives us and them three answers to that question, how we are going to endure. First, he presents Christ as both our example of how to endure, as well as Christ being our strength to endure. And second, Peter reminds them that the sufferings of this life are going to end in eternal glory. And third, the grace of election brought about by our triune God ensures our ultimate victory. And with this title, God's electing grace is going to be our our main focus of this study. Having it firmly fixed in their hearts and minds that God chose them 
in eternity past is going to provide a strong motivation to endure to the very end. Why begin this series with just two verses? Because they lay a foundation for this letter. And that foundation is God's glorious grace in the giving of his son. It is the chief motivation for enduring persecution and for saying no to sin. May these two verses strengthen our hearts as we live lives in this world that is not our home. Well, he identifies himself as Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Uh, We read that earlier. And he identifies the recipients of his letter as to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion. Where they came from is preceded by the more important question, who are these elect exiles of the dispersion? Uh, When we hear the word dispersed exiles, uh, you probably think of Israel's captivity in the Old Testament. That's the first thing that popped into my mind when I was reading this. Sure, exiles of the dispersion. Yet most commentators believe that Peter is addressing Gentile believers And I think they have some good reasons for doing that. For one, Old Testament Israel became exiles through the Assyrian and Babylonian captivities. They lost their homeland because of their sins, because of their rebellion against God. Peter gives no hint that he is addressing people who are receiving God's punishment for sin by being exiled. It's just not the context. And even more compelling is is the internal Evidence. Uh, Peter address, is addressing people who were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, 1 Peter 1.18. Jewish forefathers would have handed down God's law in their own traditions. They wouldn't have been handing down an empty way of life. That would be more uh, akin to Gentile forefathers. And Peter writes, and here's really the uh, really it, it makes a conclusive. First Peter 4, verses 3 and 4. For the, for the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them with the same flood of debauchery as, as they malign you. These believing Gentiles once believed, once were living like unbelieving Gentiles. Surprised Jewish onlookers would not have been surprised that Jewish Christians refused to engage in such debauchery. And these kinds of gross, overt sins that are being listed here by Peter, those are the kinds of sins that Paul lists in Romans chapter 1 when he is dealing with Gentile pagans. So I'm just fully convinced that these are talking about Gentile believers. And that's who Peter is addressing here. Of course, that's a mix too. There's going to be Jewish believers as well. So why does Peter begin by addressing these Gentile Christians as elect? As elect. These Christians, to endure present and future sufferings, and that's throughout his letter, they needed to be assured that they are God's chosen people but more than that Peter wanted them to know what was behind election and that's a 
that's a, a main theme that we're going to be studying. What exactly is behind election? Not just the election, but what's behind that? What's behind that? And that is really the main point of this message. Their election was based on the glorious, infinite love of their triune God. God, being God's chosen people was more than just a theological concept that Peter wanted these suffering Christians to know. They needed more. Having sound theology uh, for just for the sake of sound theology gives little comfort when life and limb are being threatened. Now, I'm not downplaying theology. Uh, I, I love theology <laughs> I, because it, it, it tells me who God is and he tells me about salvation. But some have viewed election as a dispassionate God who randomly chooses people without a rhyme or reason. And so we know from reading 1 Corinthians 1 that God chose the foolish, the weak, the despised, uh, so that no boasting would be in themselves, that boasting would be in God alone. So we could say, in a sense, that, you know, why did God choose them? Well, they're foolish. God chose foolish people. But still, why does God choose one foolish people over another person? <laughs> why did God choose this this foolish person over somebody else who uh, may be more or less foolish? Well, that is part of God's uh, secret things, those hidden things that God is just simply not going to not going to tell us. But whatever those reasons might be, we know from Scripture they were not random choices. They were not random choices. God didn't throw numbers in a hat. Unfortunately, our numbers came up. Some people actually view view election that way. Listen to what Paul tells us. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trans trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us in all wisdom and insight. Election has wisdom and insight when, when God chooses. There is a purpose. The riches of God's grace have been lavished on us, and that was done according to God's insight and wisdom. Peter reveals our status and blessings as a result of God's electing grace. In the second book, second letter, he writes, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of, out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So that passage shows our Heavenly Father pouring out one blessing after another upon his chosen people. And again, he did this with all, with all wisdom and insight. And the Apostle Paul gives us this, this comforting picture of God's, of God's elect, his love for his elect. He says, see what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called the children of God. We were elected to be placed in God's eternal family and to be adopted as his loving and beloved children. How personal is that? That's about as personal as it gets. And lastly, Peter writes, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. 
God sent his eternal love and affection on these suffering saints, and they needed it. They needed to know where they stood with God. We think about that as we looked at the life of Peter. Peter needed to know where he stood with God, and so this church needs to know the same thing. Marching in the battle with that kind of precious knowledge is a powerful weapon against our enemies. Knowing that, knowing where we stand with God. So Peter wanted them to be comforted with that knowledge. This morning we looked at Peter's opening words, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. This is followed by those who are elect. I'm not sure I should even say this, but we're going to be putting on our thinking capsule this morning. No, no. There's, there's some things that are going to be carefully explained that needed to be explained. So this is followed by to those who are elect. And let's look at that word elect. Election includes more than just simply ending up in heaven. And somebody who really doesn't know the doctrines of grace thinks that that's really what we believe. We're just on this list. Nothing really has to happen. We just, as long as we're on that list, we end up in heaven and that's it. And that's it. Well, election includes more than simply ending up in heaven. We are elected to hear the gospel, to believe the gospel, and to receive everything that pertains to this Christian life. Paul writes, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? We're not home yet, but God gives us all that we need to ensure that we are going to reach that destination. He gives us faith. He gives us repentance and grace. He gives us the church. And that list could go could go on and on. And we have the comfort of knowing that all things work together for God's glory and for our good. In Peter's letter, we're also given a grace that perhaps... You may not see his grace. If somebody was to ask you, you know, write a list of the things that God has graciously given us. This may not be on your list, but it should be. It is a grace given from God. Paul writes, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Suffering has been granted to us, just as faith has been granted to us. Again, we probably don't always look at, at suffering that way. But that suffering keeps us on the path with God and so much more. So faith and suffering are both gifts that God gives to his elect. And, that, and that's just what the apostle is teaching his church. We're going to see that in the, those, uh, all five of these chapters. God knows exactly how long we need to ride the waves of joy as well as the waves of adversity. We don't receive suffering and trials and so on just randomly. God knows exactly what they, they're perfectly fitted for us. So Solomon, uh, Solomon understood that whatever came into his life came from the hands of God. 
He writes, in the day of prosperity, be joyful. And in the day of adversity, consider God has made the one as well as the other. Do we think about that? That's how God wants us to think. God wants us to think of, of, of adversity and, and the happy times that they are all coming from God. And that's why murmuring murmuring is such a, a great sin in Scripture. It was such a great sin with the Israelites. Murmuring. Because everything was being brought in by the hands of God. So Peter goes on to define these elect as exiles of the dispersion. As some translations read uh, uh, strangers uh, instead of exiles. So how is it that Gentile believers are exiles? And that's probably most of us here. How, how is it that we are exiles? Well, the Greek word behind stranger or exile is defined as a temporary resident living in a foreign place. A temporary resident living in a foreign place. It describes a traveler whose stay is measured in weeks or months. And that same Greek word is used to describe alien, uh, Abraham as an alien and sojourner among the Hittites. And in Hebrews eleven thirteen, that same word is used to describe those Old Testament heroes, strangers and exiles on the earth. In what way have these exiles been dispersed? They have been dispersed throughout the world while they wait for their eternal home. And as with Abraham, uh, we and they are also looking for, for, forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. The moment God saved us spiritually, we became spiritually displaced. We became spiritually displaced. In a sense, we became homeless. You probably wouldn't describe myself as homeless, but that's really true. That's biblically true. Peter writes, conducting yourself with fear throughout the time of your exile. Of your exile. And again, he says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners in exile to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. So as sojourners in exiles, we live in a world that becomes or should become more foreign to us every day. We should be living in a foreign world. And the reverse is also true. To the world, we are strangers who seem a little strange and maybe a little scary as well. But as exiles waiting for our better country, God has a job for us to do. Daniel Doriani rightly comments, Scripture holds two ideas in tension. We are simultaneously exiles in this world and agents of change within it. Both those things are true. So Jesus tells us what that means. You're the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket. But on the stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and works and give glory to your God, to your Father who is in heaven. So we are not meant to live cloistered life. We are agents of change within the world. The world has to see us, and we have to interact with the world. 
And Paul writes, therefore, we are ambassadors of Christ, for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. And that's our ministry. We have the ministry of reconciling, reconciliation. We are reconciling uh, unbelievers uh, to God. So we are God's heavenly ambassadors urging others to become spiritually displaced, homeless, wandering exiles. <laughs> uh, in presenting the gospel, I wouldn't start that way. Probably something a little different than that. But there's a great and sad irony here. There really is between uh, uh, being homeless, wandering exiles. A sad irony. Eventually, it will be unbelievers who will someday be displaced. When this renewed earth becomes our new home, it is they who will be exiled. It will be they who long for a better country. Those who love this present evil age will be dispersed into a world that they will forever hate. But for those who hate this present evil age, Peter reminds us that we have an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, and kept in heaven for you. That's one of the passages we'll be looking at next month. But until that happens, we have a mission. While we are wandering exiles, we don't wander aimlessly. We have a goal. We have something to do. Paul writes, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. In the Pilgrim's Progress, Christian fled the city of destruction. And he did this in order to arrive safely into that celestial city. Through all kinds of hardships and temptations, he did, in fact, eventually arrive in that city. But throughout his homeless journey, he warned his family and anyone that he came across to flee from that city of destruction. And that's a good picture of what we are to do as dispersed exiles in this world. After Saul consented to the stoning of Stephen, the church of Jerusalem came under a severe and heavy persecution. And many fled to areas like Samaria and Judea. In Acts, we read what these dispersed exiles did. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. They went about preaching the word. These, these were really uh, physically uh, exiled people. But that biblical understanding of the church as dispersed exile is something that's seldom, seldom taught in our Christian culture. I think I was, I was a Christian for decades before I ever heard such a message that we are wandering uh, exiles in dispersion. It's not, you're going to hear very many messages then. But anyway, probably for many, this world is a home that they'd rather not believe, leave behind. Or at least not right now, but eventually. David Helm makes a troubling observation. Many Christians today have trouble sorting out the complexity of their identity in Christ. They were reared to believe that a Christian should only experience the joys of being one of God's elect. They have been taught nothing of our exilic state. With three simple words in the opening of this letter, 
Peter has given us the biblical corrective. We are exiles of the dispersion. Now these exiles, elect exiles, are said to be from Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. These are, these are five names that are given to, to, to four Roman providences somewhere around the Black Sea, and, the, and that really covers uh, modern-day Turkey. Uh, so uh, the order in which the province, these provinces were listed is probably the same order in which a, a courier or couriers would deliver mail, and they would deliver Peter's letter, letter that way. So that made Peter's letter a general epistle. His intended audience was not one specific church. So how did these become, how did they become elect exiles of the dispersion? Well, verse 2 gives us the answer. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father. And we are also exiles of the dispersion for that very same reason. It is according to God's foreknowledge. Peter could have brought comfort to these suffering uh, saints in a lot of different ways. And eventually he does. He brings lots of different, different comforts. And later on he does remind them of the eternal glories that are to come. And the great rewards of storing treasures in heaven. And Peter brings comfort by reminding them that Christ has bore their sins. But Peter begins by first establishing their secure position in Christ. That's the starting point of this letter. That's what these first two verses start out. You are secure in Jesus Christ. And so he explains what that means. They needed to know that victory was already theirs. That's the starting point. And persecution and sufferings were never going to change that. Jesus said, do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. They needed to know that whatever was going to happen in their life, they were going to have a home in heaven. So this message isn't meant to be an extended teaching on the doctrines of grace. But Peter does begin his letter with God's election and foreknowledge. Not something we could really... Uh, uh, avoid, but I'm going to be brief. I'm not going to go into extended teaching here. How one defines foreknowledge will determine how you define election. Some believe that God elects those who first elect him. Remember, elect means choose. We elect a president, we choose a president. So God looks down, in this, in this scheme, God looks down the quarters of time to see who's going to elect him. Okay? And of course, I'm speaking figuratively. God's knowledge is infinite. He's never gathering in information, figuring out what's going to happen in the future. So based on their election, God then elects them. I think it really destroys the whole meaning of election in Scripture. I think I've used this illustration before, a long time ago. And if you've heard it, bear with me on this. Back in the 90s, there was a movie called the Sixth Sense. Right? A troubled young boy sees things that others just do not see. His counselor asks him what, what he sees. What do you see? And he gives this chilling response. I see dead people. When God, so to speak, looks down the quarters of time, that's exactly what he sees. 
sees dead people. That's all he sees. He sees all of fallen humanity as the spiritually dead. He doesn't see some choosing him and some not choosing him. God sees a massive spiritual graveside. That's what God sees. The spiritually dead can only be helped with one thing, a spiritual resurrection. If you ask a dead person if they'd like to be made alive, what do you think they're going to say? They're not going to say anything, are they? They're dead. <laughs> In order to be a response, they have to be alive. But So that's not going to happen. They must first be made alive. Whether spiritually, whether physically or spiritually dead, man cannot cooperate with God to bring about a resurrection. If you're dead, you can't, you can't respond. You can't help you. Yeah, let me, let me help you out on that. No, well, you've got to be alive first. Of course, if you're alive, then you don't need a resurrection. <laughs> so we love God only because he first loved us. He receives all the grace and the glory. We repented and believed because God first breathed spiritual life into our dead souls. Instead of hating God, we now, we now love God. And with the new hearts and minds, we repented of our sins and we ran to Christ. At no point did God ever need our help. At no point. The apostle wrote, wrote this about the new birth in John 3.8 and how that new birth comes about. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. As the wind blows wherever it wishes, God is sovereign in salvation. He does whatever he wishes. Quoting Exodus, Paul writes, For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will, exertion, but on God who has mercy. I was about 40 years old before I became Reformed, became a Calvinist. All those years before, I never heard a pastor preach on Romans 9. <laughs> it's just too difficult. There's too much explaining that has to be done. Never heard one. So, God will not fail to save his elect. And as, the, as that hymn goes, to God be the glory. God's foreknowledge is not, and this is important, God's foreknowledge is not about who's wrong or right. It's not about who has the correct theology. That's nothing but pride. It's about God's glory. That's what it's about. Who's going to gain the glory? Who's going to give the glory for my salvation? It's not going to be me. I would have continued in my ways unless God had intervened in my life and brought me this from spiritual death to spiritual life. It's about God's glory, and he is not going to share that with anyone. Concerning Christ and his atonement for sin, Peter writes, he was foreknown before the foundation of the, the earth. And that's in 1 Peter 1.20. Christ was foreknown. Let's take that word foreknown and foreknowledge. Well, what, is, what does that mean? Well, God didn't look down the corridors of time to see what decisions that his son would make, to see what kind of choices he would make. Oh, I see my son dying on a cross. No, that's not foreknowledge. 
I'm going to let uh, Thomas Schreiner have the final words on foreknowledge. Any, any comments on this particular verse in First Peter? God foreknew people, not objects or things, by setting his love upon them. Probably the best parallel is 1 Peter 1.20, where Peter declares that Christ was foreknown before the foundation of the world. Peter is not merely saying that God foresaw when Christ would come. He is also saying that God foreordained when Christ would come. Indeed, God had to plan when he would come since Christ was sent by God. Christ's coming hardly depends on human choices. So I'll return to our text. That's a, that was a sermon in itself. The elect exiles, according to God's foreknowledge, is followed by the sanctification of the Spirit. And, and these are this is where we put on our, our thinking caps. This is where we, we really have to think. And this is where a real careful examination of God's Word is, is important. There are two different ways that the Spirit sanctifies the believer. And we're probably familiar with the Spirit's ongoing work in sanctification. And that classic text would be 2 Corinthians 3.18. And we all, with unveiled faces, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the like, the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So there's that, that progressive, ongoing sanctification that the Spirit does in our life. But there's also a one-time sanctification that happens the moment we become born of the Spirit. This is called definitive or positional sanctification. Now we see in passages like Acts 20.32, And now I commend to you God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among, the, among all those who are sanctified. Present tense. And Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 1.2, To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ. And we could, we could multiply uh, verses such as that. The context of sanctification in our text points, I think, to a one-time work of the Holy Spirit. The next verse is verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again. It's talking about that one-time work that the Holy Spirit does. So these elect, Israel, elect Gentiles are now permanent members of God's family. And that's what Peter wanted them to know. So the, through the new birth, the Spirit has set them apart once and for all. As you know, as present uh, persecution and first, future persecution uh, begin to wreak havoc on the church, they need that confident assurance that whatever happens to them, they belong to Christ. Peter goes on to, sit, on to write obedience to Jesus Christ. Well, here we go again. As with sanctification of the Spirit, obedience to Jesus Christ can have two different meanings as well. Is Peter speaking of the ongoing, uh, of an ongoing life of obedience to Christ? And then that could be. Or the one-time obedience that comes when we obeyed the gospel call. When we obeyed the gospel call. But with an ongoing obedience to Christ, we, we normally think of this as being the work of the Holy Spirit in, in sanctification. So like the Spirit's one-time work of sanctification, 
obedience to Christ is also a one-time occurrence, you see. And I think the internal evidence also supports that. In 1 Peter 1, 1 having purified your hearts by your obedience to the truth. Obedience to the truth. And later on he writes, for it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome of those who do not obey the gospel of God? There it is, the obedience of, of the faith. The Apostle Paul virtually begins and ends the book of Romans with the obedience of the faith. So the gospel call is more than just an invitation. It is to be obeyed. Paul tells, Paul tells us in Acts, God commands all people everywhere to repent. More than an invitation, it's a command by God that, that people obey the gospel of God. So along with being permanently set apart by the Spirit, their obedience to the gospel also brings further comfort. And so again, Peter is, conf- is confirming their secure position that they have right now in Christ in order to face those sufferings that are to come. And lastly, Peter writes, in for sprinkling with his blood. This is another comfort that Peter brings to the church. Is it is but once again is this sprinkling of the blood an ongoing work or a one time occurrence of obedience? That Christ's blood continues to cleanse us from sin is clearly taught in Scripture. We think of first John one seven, as we walk in the light, he is in the light. We have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Christ cleanses us from all sin. But as with obedience and sanctification, Peter is reminding them of their present state of grace. So I believe this sprinkling refers to the new covenant of grace. It's referring to the new covenant. They've been sprinkled by the blood of Christ in the new covenant. They have been forever sealed by the blood of their Savior. I appreciate the words of Edmund Clooney here. He writes, While the mountain shook at the presence of the Lord, the people were assembled to enter into covenant with God. At an altar with twelve pillars, sacrifice was offered. Half of the blood was sprinkled on the altar. Moses read again the words of God's covenant, and the people vowed their obedience. Moses then sprinkled the blood with the rest of the sacrificial blood, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. At, Mount, at Sinai, Israel was made the people of God. They were joined to him in his covenant. Now Peter speaks of Gentiles becoming obedient to Christ through the new covenant in his blood. We are sprinkled not with the blood of oxen, but with the blood of Jesus Christ. So in these two verses, Peter stacks grace upon grace in comfort upon comfort. The electing love of God, the redemptive work of his son, the sanctifying work of the spirit have been permanently placed on these suffering saints. And Peter wanted them to know that. He wanted them to know that. So they would not have to go forward wondering about their present state of grace with our Lord. Peter's not presenting these things as as future or as a possibility. He's saying, saints, this is what you are right now. He presents them as their present and permanent possession. And this tender-hearted shepherd wants his flock to find the comforts in those truths. 
Peter was doing what God had told Isaiah to do. Comfort, comfort my people, says God, the Lord. When Jesus forgave and restored Peter, he knew where he stood with his Lord. And he freed him to move forward with boldness and courage. And his Lord would never leave him forsake him. He needed to know that. And, and he realizes the need of this congregation to know, or these churches to know that as well. For Peter, the worst had been done and the worst had been forgiven. He needed to make certain his readers knew their salvation was permanently secured. Having that knowledge, they could, they could face any obstacle. And that's the truth of us. We can face anything. We know our salvation. We, we have that assurance before God that we are saved. We can face anything. This is life brings to us. I have the home in heaven. That's, that's what I need. A home in heaven, no matter what happens here. So this letter began not with suffering, hardships, or the glory to come, not even living a holy life, though Peter talks much about that later. In these two verses, the starting point and foundation of this letter is God's electing grace. And so it's not surprising Peter would close with God's grace. First Peter 5.12, he writes, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. He ends it. It's like bookends. He starts with that and he ends with that. God's grace acts as as bookends. So what motivates you to continue on the road that leads to eternal life? Treasures are good motivators. And we like to avoid chastening of the Lord when we become stiff-necked, right? And we also know that our sins leave the, the door wide open for Satan's accusations. A lot of other things could be added. Far and away, the best motivation for preserving to the end is God's love expressed for us in the giving of his son. That takes everything. That takes precedence. Knowing that, that that grace was given to you. God's personal love for Paul was never far from his lips. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me. Gave himself for me. Paul had that knowledge. And look, look what Paul did in his life. I'm still amazed when we read, read Corinthians. The things that he went through. But he, just, he had the love of Christ. He knew. He knew he had a solid rock understanding and faith. And unmovable faith. That God loved him. And he gave himself for him. Paul could do anything. And we can too. But this settled assurance comes easier for some and for others. It didn't, it didn't come as easy for Peter as, as it was for Paul. And, we're, and we are all different in, in that respect. And so Peter could write, Peter could write in Second Peter, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. Why does he need to write that? Because we don't have perfect faith. We don't have perfect confidence. It's always growing. It's always growing. We're growing from grace to grace, from faith to faith. And so that's a, that is what Peter, and that's what the Bible tells us to do. We need to make our calling and election sure. We need to pray for faith. We need to pray that everything that, that we need to move forward and to believe God more and more. Well, Peter's going to go on and talk a lot more about the trial of our faith, the testing of our faith, the, the genuineness of our faith. 
So I'm going to leave that uh, that for for another time, for another time. So let's pray and ask God uh, to bless us. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for the life of Peter. We thank you for the letter that he has written to us. We have so much to learn. Peter shows us the ways that we are to grow. And Lord, that is from you. You are, you are showing us the way to grow. Lord, we ask for greater degrees of faith and confidence and assurance. We want to be able to move forward on a Christian life knowing that no matter what happens to us, God, you're there waiting for us. You're waiting there with a smiling face. You are waiting to welcome us in to your blessed kingdom. May you drive that hope deep into our hearts. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.